What's good? What's good, party people? Welcome to Candid Conversations. I am your host, Candia Johnson, a woman on a mission to help you show up and speak up anyway, despite dealing with fear, uncertainty, or self-doubt. For the last eight years, I've side-eyed the word balance, and people who even use the term work-life balance, I've always believed any entity or activity that you give eight hours of your life to can never be balanced with your personal work life. And I always thought work-life balance was a phrase coined by some higher-up executives who sat around in a room and said, let's package and sell this term work-life balance to employees so that the job could seem more appealing, although they had no clue about what it really means to do the real work and what it requires mentally, physically, emotionally, and financially. Especially when you think about the traditional definition of balance. However, drum roll please, I'm lowering my side eye stance, party people. Thanks to Torrey Roberts and his new book, Balance, Positioning Yourself to Do All Things Well, which lays out the framework to prevent burnout and add fuel to excel throughout the journey of life. My side eye stance is lowered. Now, Torrey Roberts is the founder of One LA. It's one of the most influential congregations in the nation. He's an entrepreneur and he, along with his wife, you probably know her, Sarah Jakes Roberts, whom I absolutely love. Okay, she gets my mind together all the time. And I even interviewed her maybe three years ago for Black Enterprise Magazine. So I was super excited that I got to interview her husband on my podcast. But, you know, real talk. I was a little bit apprehensive about conducting an interview with a pastor, especially such a public and influential one who has close to a million followers because I felt like "Mm, I'm not a fan or organized religion is not appealing to me, but I do consider myself a spiritual person. And over the years, I followed him and Sarah on YouTube and I adore his transformational teachings on being consistent and mastering self-talk. And I love his unique way of sharing lessons on everything from relationships and faith to purpose and entrepreneurship. So in today's interview, we discuss how balance is a place within you, not outside of you and ways to protect it. And beyond sharing principles, tools, and prompts for self-evaluation and feeling more balanced in your life, he gives a very vulnerable an honest interview about his shortcomings and his journey from being raised in Watts, LA. Now, if you don't know, Watts, LA is known for riots and gangs and, you know, the good areas and not so good areas. But anywho, he even talks about the number of years it took him to get out of survival mentality and how he connected the dots between some of the challenges and ways he overcame them and entrepreneurship to actually starting this mega church. We talk about self-care and prioritization, which was refreshing because I don't usually hear a lot of men talk about self-care. And so in his discussion, he talks about finding balance even outside of his relationship with his wife and six kids. So listen, I'm excited for y'all. Listen to this and let me know what you think. So I am super thrilled. Y'all know when I say that I'm super thrilled, we have a, a, a guest 
in the Candid Conversations virtual building today. Welcome, Toure Roberts. Thank you, Candia. Honored to be here. I'm so excited about our conversation. So before we got to officially recording this episode, I explained to Toure that my first interaction with him was a few years ago when someone on my timeline shared a video of him speaking about consistency. And it was several mic drop moments, but the one mic drop that got my mind all the way together was when you said the process of unbecoming is more difficult than becoming. And so I'd like for us to start this episode talking about young Toure at 16. Mm. What were you raised to believe was success and fulfillment? And what did you want to be in life back then? Well, I must say that I had a wonderful family. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother raised me and a couple of aunties. I had this community of about five strong women that were encouraging me. My father was near, but not present. And, uh, and we were in Watts. So honestly, we were so busy. I won't say trying to survive, but we were so busy surviving that there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on, with specificity on the future, on tomorrow. Of course, we were encouraged to go to school and, and go to college or what have you, but we didn't really talk about that because we were just trying to navigate the seasons that we were in. As it relates to that comment about the process of becoming, all of us want to become, but there's so many things that, that shape us in life. The majority of the time, it's what we have to unbecome. It's what we have to let go of. I was shaped in a wonderful environment, but if you're only shaped to survive, you will never make plans to thrive. And so I was probably close to 40 years old before I honestly believed that I had a great future. Now it's crazy. I was in corporate America by then. I was doing well. I had my own company in the tech space, everything, but it was that unlearning this survivor or the survival mentality that was vital to me embracing the more that life had in store for me. I know I said a lot, but, but I'm trying to answer no, both, both questions. No, I, I appreciate your transparency because even for me, I didn't really become familiar with the term survival mentality and how I was, I stepped into that for many years of my life. What, what, how would you define the uh, survival mentality? It is to approach life from the place of a deficit or disadvantage. And so it is essentially to say, I don't have something or to live with a fear of not having something. And so you approach life, not with this desire to excel, even though you may be excelling, <laughs> but you approach life with this desire to not lose, to not fail. And, uh, and that's a survival mentality. And it's really a, a deficit mentality. And it's a debilitating mentality because it takes a lot more energy, effort, creative, cerebral resource to not lose than to step into a moment believing that all things are possible, believing that goodness is on the other side, believing that you're going to do well. And I also have learned, and even science proves this, anytime you ruminate on something negative, 
it, it does something to your brain. There are increased protein deposits and all of that stuff leads can lead to early dementia. So it takes more energy, effort, cognitive, creative resource that you could be using to build a dream that was greater than anything your family's ever seen. But to live in this survival mentality means that I'm bringing all of myself trying to make it, trying to not fail. And you were created to not bring all of yourself to not fail, but to bring all of yourself in order that you might soar. So you are the pastor behind One Church LA. It's one of the fastest growing churches in the nation. I'm curious to know what were the turning points for you in your life that led you to ministry? And now (laughs) the leader behind this ginormous I think it's an initiative, it's a, a movement, it's a community, it's so many things. And so what was the turning point for you that led you to ministry and to do this work? Candy, I have to tell you, if you would have come to me 22 years ago and said, you know what, you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be a spiritual leader, and your whole life is going to be based on serving humanity, I would have said, you have been smoking something. And I would have whispered, where might I find some? (laughs) You know, I mean, I I was so not there. I was doing very well. Well, my background is technology. And so I was working with a company that built data centers for Fortune 100 companies. And then I also started my own business because I saw a need. There was a gap between what my company did and what the consumer needed. And so I just fit that need, started my own company, ended up making more money with the company that I started to facilitate what we were doing than I did in that corporate job. Uh, I was doing very well externally, socially, externally. When I say socially, I mean people knowing me, me getting around my social circles. But if I am to be honest, internally, I was not doing well and I knew it. And I went through a relationship change and it was significant. Me, me and my wife at the time broke up. And, and I figured that if I was going to do well, because my, my family structure, that marriage, and we had two children at the time, had become my foundation of peace. And there's probably a lot to unpack there, but because that's what it was, I knew that if I was going to disrupt the, my foundation of security, that I needed to seek out God and a spirituality that would let me know that everything was still going to be okay. And so I started going to this church in LA and long story, not so long, I sat in this church and there was a pastor, Faithful Central is the name of the church. And it's a pastor by the name of Bishop Kenneth Olmer. And I'm sitting in a crowd full of a couple of thousand people. And every single weekend, he's talking to no one in the room but me. And I mean, you know, when it goes well beyond coincidence, how does he know? Is my phone tapped? Surely he's got cameras on me. And for me, the message was clear. Surrender, you know, surrender. I really felt that God was speaking to me and saying, I brought you out of Watts. I have prospered you. You have done incredibly well, well beyond anybody in your neighborhood. And, uh, and if you're honest, you know that you're not living 
the way that you, you should live. And, and I'm not just talking about not going to church. I mean, I was arrogant. I was an arrogant person. I was extremely egotistical and self-centered and I, I knew it. And, uh, and so I, I surrendered. And, and what that looked like for me was I just said, I'm going to not do my own thing and seek you when I'm in trouble or I need something that I can't fix. I'm going to really aim to have a, a, a spiritual relationship with God. And I did. And my life changed. I became a better human being. You know, it just something was profound was happening to me. And so as it relates to, to becoming a pastor in ministry, when I would tell people about my experience, I realized that I had the gift to compel. And so people were being impacted. I mean, just friends being impacted. And there was a, a dream that I had. And in that dream, I knew that I really felt God saying, you, you need to step into this and be a blessing to others as I have been to you. As far as the church goes, because I am an entrepreneur, because I am a business person, I'm always measuring effort to impact. And so it's wonderful for me to be talking to one person or two people and sharing this message. But if I created a, a, an infrastructure and a system where I can take that same energy and reach 50 people, 100 people, 500 people, 2,000 people, then that would be the best use of my effort to have the greatest impact. And so for me as an entrepreneur, not knowing anything about the church world, I didn't have no pastors in my family, none of that stuff. I just figured out, how, wait, how does this work? You know, and created ultimately what became this, this thriving global community now. That is such a powerful testimony. And I can also speak to the fact that you do have transformative power when it comes to compelling mm. people to think, believe, and see things differently. You are incredibly gifted at connecting the word to insight and then action. So now I want to shift gears and talk about balance because I have mm. to just keep it all the way real with you. When I first came across the email talking about the book release and balance, I have rejected the word balance. You know, because you come from a corporate America background. <laughs> balance has been the word I rebuke. Like, no, I don't believe in balance because I associate it with time management or the number of hours you give to something. So what was the point that led you to challenge our belief systems on balance? Yeah, I, I can tell you uh, the book and the message of the book has evolved. It took me over two years to write this book, which it does not take me that long to write a book. I may gather the content over a year, but when I sit down to write, it's typically a concentrated two months, three months, and it's finished. And then it goes off to edits. It wasn't the case. And I have to be transparent. My understanding of what balance is evolved through the process of writing it. What made me want to tackle the subject in the first place is because I knew that it was something that everyone wanted but could not seem to access. You, you never hear anyone in your life come up to you and say, I'm so balanced. I am just loving how balanced my life is. It is always, man, I need more balance in my life. And so I am stimulated by the challenges of life. I, I just believe that we have access to power and insight to overcome any challenge. So it started with me tackling the challenge of balance. 
And then when I got into it, I realized that, oh my goodness, balance is not what people think. Because to your point, the reason why people get frustrated with the notion of balance to the point where they believe essentially that it's a myth, it is unattainable. I think that if we approach it the traditional way, we struggle. And that traditional way is I've got 10 responsibilities, five responsibilities that are important to me, that matter to me, that are non-negotiables. And so I need to find a way to divide myself up into those five or 10 things equally, you know, proportionately, whatever. And that way, those five, 10 things will be handled. But here is the thing. We can't divide ourselves up. You know, I can't give my wife, Sarah, 10% of me, my kids, 12% of me, my staff, 13% of me, and so on and so forth. So, so I have discovered that balance is not about time management, although time management is phenomenal. It's not about work-life balance, although you certainly ought to know when to do what at, at given whatever need is prevailing. So it's not about dividing yourself up. It is about becoming all of who you are, becoming your best self, and then giving your best self to those important things in turn. So it's a paradigm shift. What I talk about in the book is that balance is not a discipline. It's a destination. It is a state of being. It is a place where your best self emerges. And when your best self emerges, you can give that to everything and everyone in your life. Let, let me tell you how I made the mistake that most people make. I said, okay, this week, I'm going to have a balanced week. I'm going to do date night. I'm going to take my daughter to get ice cream. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have me and my son, we have a little hot tub thing where we get out there and we talk. And I said, I'm going to line up all these things. And it sounded good. It sounded like time management. It sounded like work life balance. The problem is I wasn't giving my best to any of those. I, I, I may have gotten one of those things right. But by the time I got to take my daughter to ice cream, I wasn't present. I was exhausted. I had nothing to give my, to my son and our little time together. And so I realized it's not about trying to give pieces of yourself. What I have discovered is become your best self. Then in turn, as life plays itself out or as need calls out, then you give all of you to somebody else. And so balance is a state, not a discipline. Mm, I love that because even for me, I'm, I'm reading the book. And I'm looking, okay, so what's the first step for this balance? Because listen, the pessimistic part of me is still like, hmm, yeah. side alert. Okay, we gonna, this is the side eye. <laughs> keep it real, right? Yeah. And I realized a couple of pages in that it's a journey more inward than mm -hmm. outward and kind of looking for that first step than the second step, because that's what we're typically used to, the five steps to this and the six ways to mm -hmm. do this. Yeah. And it's more about being open and being curious um, to what's mm -hmm. happening within us. What would you say are some signs that we are imbalanced? There are several. I think one is weariness. There's a difference between tiredness and weariness. And I define weariness in the book as the gradual gravitational pull to the tarmac of disaster. Y you know, you can't tolerate weariness because by the time you are weary, you're in trouble. It, it, tiredness has left. Now you're weary, which means that you're going down, but you don't know it. Your, your work productivity begins to fail. You are impatient. And typically the people that get the brunt of your impatience are those 
who you claim to love the most, those who are closest to you. You can smile at work. Even when you're weary, you smile at work. <laughs> you put your grin on. But when you get home, come on, you fussing at, at your partner, your spouse, your wife, you know, your, your, your kid, your creativity begins to slip. Uh, your vision is no longer clear. You used to be fired up about your dream, fired up about your vision. And, and when you are imbalanced, you can't even find your vision. Wait, what? What? I was at the beginning of the year. I, was, I saw it so clearly. I was moving toward it. Now I can't even find it. Where is it? What, what did I say again? What am I supposed to be doing? So all these things, jealousy and envy is another one. You, you are so depleted and, uh, and you don't have any ability ability to move forward that anybody else you see moving forward, you envy, you're jealous of. You know, one of the things that I want to do with this book is make imbalance intolerable, that you will no longer tolerate being out of balance because you understand that it is moving you in a direction that is on your best day, not productive, but on your worst day, destructive. I could see that. Another profound part of the book is when we talk about this journey to striving for balance, you made a clear difference between being self-aware, which is the latest, the buzzword, right? Yeah. A difference between self-aware and soul aware. And I was like, mm -hmm. wow, wait a minute. I got some things wrong here. Could you share your perspectives on the power of being soul aware versus self-aware? Absolutely. Self-aware is essentially knowing yourself. It's essentially understanding where you are in a moment, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Oftentimes the hardest person to see is oneself. And so if one can kind of, oh, you know, I have a tendency to do that. Ah, when this happens, I do that. And I think that self-awareness is a wonderful thing. You, you've got to know yourself so that you can know why you're doing something. You can determine whether or not it's the thing to do. I mean, I think it's wonderful. Soul awareness is on a whole nother level Be because soul awareness is tapping into the deepest part of who you are as a living being. And uh, so it's deeper than self-aware. It it's layers down. It is the core of who you are. It is the true essence of who you are and your soul wants balance. Your, your, your soul doesn't want to be uh, tossed to and fro. Your soul is drawn towards balance as a compass is drawn towards north. So your soul knows what it needs. And here is the challenge in not being soul aware. Your soul could be longing for something and you haven't connected with your soul enough to interpret what it is longing for and you misinterpret that as some sort of a physical longing. And so we try to satisfy the longing of the soul with some sort of physical thing. It could be drinking, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be company and relationship and nothing wrong with company and relationship, but we are, we're not truly getting to the root of that longing. And that's why nothing satisfies. It's because I haven't tapped into what my soul needs. My soul needs balance. My soul needs that place. It, it understands the environment where my whole self flourishes and, and thrives. Your soul knows that your soul is honest. It's the most honest part of you, but we often can't get to it. And one of the reasons why we can't get to soul awareness is because we don't know how to escape the noise of life. That's a mic drop there. <laughs> you talk about the noise 
a lot throughout your book. And I couldn't agree more. A few months ago, I took a social media detox and I'm still mm-hmm. only really committed to, to one platform, but two, LinkedIn and, and YouTube for now, because the noise was, it just became too much for me. And so another thing that you touch on too, is just taking time to get to know the many different dimensions, the deeper dimensions of ourselves. What are some ways that you have practiced to get to know and embrace the many different versions or dimensions of yourself? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's to stop. What I have learned to do, and I say learn to do because it's not easy. What I've learned to do is to stop. It takes more faith to stop than it does to launch forward, even into new things. You know, people think, oh, I need to step out on faith and I need to step into this new thing. And the reality of it is, and of course, it takes faith to take leaps of faith. But what I have discovered is it takes more faith than any of that to stop, to to believe that you have permission to shut down and that your life will not fall completely apart if you do. Most people want to know what the first step to balance is. And I tell them it's no step at all. It's to stop. So what happens when I stop? When I stop, first of all, I recognize how noisy life is. See, it isn't until you stop and you get still that you say, oh my God, I'm living in noise because now in our world, noise is normal. And anything that is normal, you cannot discern because it is your norm. And so so the first step and what I do is I take time to stop, to shut it all down. And I have learned that if I do it, not only is my world not going to collapse, but my world is actually going to improve because it is in that taking that time to stop and to get still, I can accurately recognize self. I can recognize soul. I can recognize environment and what I need to move the things that are important to me forward. And so I, I, I stop all the, I am a big proponent of writing things down. I believe that God has things to say to us and there are messages that God wants to get to us, but he cannot get, get them to us because our life is so noisy. And, and we're just moving in a particular direction. We're on the train tracks, just going on down the road, not recognizing whether or not we've passed our stop, not recognizing whether or not we were supposed to veer off this way. And so I need to stop to assess where I'm at, where I am, to, to understand what my soul is longing for, to get instructions from God. And for me, that's important because I, I need to constantly, particularly in this noisy time, I need to be defining myself. And what I do every single day, I got to tell you, and I talk, I have my whole daily routine in one of the chapters in the book, but what I do every single day, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I spend alone time meditating and rediscovering who I am. Because in a noisy environment, there's so many things telling you who you are, who you're not, who you should be, you know, it's noisy. And so who am I? So I pause, I look at things that maybe God has said to me recently, promises that God has made to me recently. And I define myself 
every single day. Before I step into my day, I take time to get still and define who I am before I even say good morning to my wife. Because I want the right version of myself to show up and greet her, <laughs> you know. And so I have a whole, you know, regimen for the day. But, but I think the most important part of my disciplines is to daily stop, get still, center myself, allow what I know to be true about myself to define me afresh. And then I step into my day. I love it. I'm also committed to meditation every morning. Mm -hmm. That me time yeah. you explained was a, a phrase in the book, unapologetic self-prioritization. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I really enjoyed when you talked about being committing to unapologetic self-prioritization is mm -hmm. recognizing the requirement to just have you time without your wife, without being connected to work and the children to really get centered on you so you could focus on others. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes many of us, and I've felt guilty or self-centered because I wanted to please other people first before me. Of course, I know your background and I also know you're a, a father of six, <laughs> right? Children. <laughs> you have how many employees would you say that you have right now? Just under 30. Just under yeah. 30. Yeah, just so 30. Yeah. I could imagine though how difficult that is to dedicate that time. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing your process because Again, as a dad of six and a husband and leader of massive church, I can imagine how difficult that can be for you to step away. Well, well here is the deception. The, the, the deception is if I step away to prioritize myself, I am going to deprive my spouse, my children, my investors, my staff. I'm going to somehow be taking something away from that's the greatest deception. So in other words, that line of thinking says, even though I'm weary and my best thoughts are not emerging, even though I am tired and I have no creativity, even though I am being pulled down to nothing and have no vision, can't even find my latest vision, even though all those things are in play, it is still better for me not to withdraw to become better. <laughs> That's insanity. And so I have learned that if I really love my wife, if I really love my children, if I really love my staff, if I really love my employees who are depending on me to be at my best to keep the company afloat, if I really love them, then I have to prioritize me to offer my best to them in those respective capacities. You know, it's just lunacy to think that you're doing them a service. And here is one of the things that I have done, especially with my kids. And now they don't have any problem with me leaving. My wife is like, go. I'm like, listen, I promise you, if you let me go, the version of you, the version of dad, the version of Bay. <laughs> the version of, you know, leader that you're going to get back, you are going to, you won't have any problem with me ever leaving again. And now my staff loves it when I go, because when I come back, I'm fired up. My vision is clear. I'm motivating. I've got patience. My wife is like, Hey, I'll miss you. But, but I appreciate what's going to walk back through that door 
after you've taken three days to yourself. And so it's almost like the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Initially, I used to have to say, you know, daddy's going away. I'm so sorry. Oh, dad, where are you going? But now they know when I walk through that door, I'm going to have way more patience. I'm going to have way more joy. I'm going to have better ideas, more, more of myself to give to them. And now everyone is on board with the fact that prioritizing self is everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hearing you speak about that makes me think of another one of my favorite chapters is energy save mode. Oh, yeah. And a few mic drops there. But what I love about it is anyone can identify with the fact that you've probably been somewhere you don't have your phone charger and then you use the energy save mode on your phone to make your battery last longer. I remember that happened to me and I realized that I could only get access to make a call, I think, and text. But every other app was shut down. I could only use those two applications to preserve the remaining battery on the phone. And reading that chapter and book, it forced me to think about how can I avoid even going into Mm. energy save modes, not only preparing for it, but it's like, okay, I don't, I shouldn't get my battery down to 5% every week. (laughs) That shouldn't Mm, be so good a thing. So I'm happy to hear that. It it seems like you set that as a standard with your children and your staff and your wife and, and everything. I I do. I, I remember, um, a time when I really needed to get away and I put it off 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 until things got really bad. So much so that I didn't feel well, forget about being weary, forget about not having patience, forget about not having clarity of vision, all that stuff, not being innovative, forget it. I flat out stopped feeling good. And so finally I forced myself to get away. And as soon as I got to my getaway, I essentially collapsed and had a really powerful, profound moment. And there was great restoration. I got myself back, but I made the decision when I was leaving there. And I said, I will never let myself get that far depleted again. It's almost like that first time you ran out of gas, you know, in your car. I've had that experience where I pushed it and I pushed it. And I pushed it, I pushed it next year. I'm on the side of the road looking silly. And all it took me was one time, (laughs) just one time. And I said, I will never get that empty again. And so you're right. We're talking about maintenance to say that empty is not an option. I I believe that even at the end of your day, if you wrap your day up and you are just completely depleted, so much so that all you have the strength to do is to collapse across your bed, not even take your shoes off and go to sleep. You spent too much in that day. You overspent. Think about a computer. You know, computers are damaged. If you just you let the battery go and go and go and go and then it just shuts off, they're damaged in that way. What are you supposed to do with the computer? With the computer, you're supposed to close out your apps and then shut it down. Let it go through the cycle of shutting down so that when you fire it up in the morning, it's ready to go. And so a lot of people work and work and work and work, and they don't have any boundaries, any restraints, get home, have nothing to give to the people that they love and just, and not have, and have nothing to give to themselves before they go to sleep. And so I all, I, I suggest having a wind down period at the end of your day where you, okay, you know, and maybe I don't know, it depends on what time you go to sleep, but if you go to sleep at nine, 
or 10. At seven, you're starting to wind down. You are closing out. You're saying your goodbyes. You're closing things out. You're reflecting on what you got accomplished and what you didn't. And you're putting that on your calendar for the next day. You get to gratitude in some way. I think that we ought to always go to sleep grateful. So you, you get to gratitude. You get in the bed. You meditate. You breathe. You do your ritual. You know, wash your face, whatever you got to do. You know, do your ritual. And then you go to sleep in gratitude and in peace because you saved a little bit for yourself in each day. Mm, I like that. A wind down period. And also I noticed in your forward, Sarah wrote about getting off autopilot. I think mm-hmm. many of us want like a stringent, we have to do this, do this, do this. We show up to church on Sunday, we do this. And you kind of put your foot down like, no, we're not going to church today. Mm-hmm. We're going to get off autopilot and we are just going to spend time as a family. And I think that especially for people such as myself <laughs> at times who have had struggles with perfectionism and showing up and not backing out on your word. And it takes a lot of courage to get off of autopilot and say, no, I have to take care of me first. Absolutely. So thank you for, for that message as well. Yeah, we've got to prioritize ourselves because here's the thing. No one else will. No one else will. And even if they try to, they're not aware enough concerning you to give you what you need. And so I believe that we were created with the responsibility to be sensitive toward what we need, to be sensitive towards our need and to prioritize ourselves. Of course, I'm a man of faith. And to quote scripture here, I hope I can do this on your podcast. But Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And for me, when I think of a commandment, a commandment to me is how do I align in such a way that I can be the most blessed. That's what his commandments are. His commandments for me are to align myself in such a way that I can be the most blessed that I can be. And so with them coming and asking him, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment that I can align with so that I can be the most blessed that I can be? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength, relationship with God, Then he says, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, the average person misinterprets the sequence. They think the sequence of prioritization is God, neighbor, self, because it says love your neighbor as you love yourself. But that's incorrect. The sequence of prioritization is God, because to know God, to be in relationship with God, is what gives you the clarity and the truth about God's love for you to love yourself properly. So a a good relationship with God translates into a good relationship with self. That's the way it works. And so that's why. So the prioritization is God and then self neighbor. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Therefore, how I love myself and prioritize myself will becomes the benchmark for which how I love and take care of others. And so right there in the the word of God in the Bible, God is telling us to prioritize self over others so that you can be a blessing to others. And we miss it. And so, no, we, that I, I, you're talking about what Sarah wrote in that forward and we were leading the church, Uh, but here's what being balanced does. Being balanced makes you sensitive to needs because my family was in need. 
And because we decided to not be an autopilot, we decided to get still, we recognized our family needs us, you know? And so I made the call. I sure did. I called my staff and said, Torrey Roberts will not be there, you know? And it was last minute. And, and I had to say no to, to the community in order to say yes to my family, which needed me in that moment more than anybody else. I absolutely love it because what you talked about in terms of relationship with God and the relationship with self, I know you covered a a bit of it and y'all have to watch the series on (laughs) conversations with self and the most profound mic drop. I probably need like a tambourine for the statement (laughs) when uh, you said seeing yourself as a mystery leads to Mm. self mastery. Yes. Yes. Because that was a a testament to learning how to love myself by having a conversation with myself and saying, okay, what is it that's no longer true for me? Mm -hmm. And giving myself permission to form new beliefs for myself in order to to get to that next dimension. When I look at myself as a mystery, what is something that is probably no longer true for me? And I, I, I was curious about something that you used to believe that you no longer believe is true for your life. Mm, this lesson I learned a few years ago, I, I experienced some losses. And prior to that, I had a 10-year run of nothing but wins, nothing but wins. Um, book deals, two book deals, production deals, real estate stuff, just winning. Church was just exploding, winning, you know. And then all of a sudden, in a short period of time and, and within about 12 months, I experienced some losses. And subconsciously and gradually, they started weighing on me. And I didn't know it. See, things happen. If you, that's why you got to be self-aware and, of course, soul-aware, because things will happen to you and you won't recognize what's happening to you. My confidence began to slip. And I kind of acquiesced it and I, I wasn't showing up. My expectations out of life begin to, to diminish and begin to shrink. And through a series of epiphanies and encounters, I realized that no, just because I lost does not mean I'm a loser. Just because this failed doesn't mean that I'm a failure. And so now I've coined this phrase, never waste a perfectly good failure. Because if you do an autopsy on your failure, you will discover tools and principles and insight and revelation that you desperately needed in order to succeed and win on the next level. Mm, I love that. And I know it was a perfect ending to today's (laughs) episode Torrey Roberts, affectionately known as PT. I forgot to ask you, is it okay if I call you PT? Because when I watch the video, I'll be like, hey, PT. I call TD Jakes Uncle TD as well. (laughs) Family always laughs. Like, that's like (laughs) your uncle. But anywho, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the Candid Conversations family. Where can the people follow you and engage with your transformative content and messages? Awesome. Well, of course, I'm on all the social platforms, Torrey Roberts, T-O-U-R-E Roberts. And then, of course, thebalancebook.com. You can reach me there and find out more information about the book, thebalancebook.com. 
Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. Listen, y'all know how this goes. If this message, if this lesson, if this episode touched your heart in any way, share it with your people so they can share it with their people. I will talk to y'all next week.